right, and we are back to once again explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Bendergrass. And joining us once again is a guest that we have had on the podcast before that we have very much looked forward to having back on, Brother Patrick Mead. Patrick, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, it's, it was fun last time. I'm sure it'll be fun this time. Thank you for asking. Yes. Well, thank you for coming back. We really appreciate it. You're an incredibly busy man, especially with all the traveling you've been doing this this early part, or I guess late part of spring, getting into the early part of summer. If you believe the thermometer outside where we are, it's 94 degrees this evening, Oof. which is a little bit hot for early May, but it's Oklahoma. What can you do? Um, but I know you've been doing a lot of traveling with our Safe Harbor Church. You've been doing a lot of different things. You guys have a really good thing going over there. And that takes a tremendous amount of time. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come back on and talk with us two chuckleheads. Tonight, we're going to be talking about baptism. This is a concept, a topic that Kevin and I have wanted to discuss for quite a while now, but we really wanted a third person on and we thought that you would be a really good fit for this conversation. So this yeah, is going to be fun. We, we have some questions prepared. We're going to have a great conversation. I'm looking forward to getting this thing well, going. And we thought it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to understand baptism, but it does take a brain surgeon. So we're glad yeah, that, that you're on yeah. with us. And, and before I became a neuroscientist, I was a shrink. So I, I'm used to doing group therapy. If you two need to, <laughs> need to have a, a moderator between you. Well, we, we may have to take you up on that. No, oh, I, I think Kevin great. and I's vitriolic days are largely behind yeah. us, unless we're in traffic and then all bets are off. Man, um, I don't want to make Lee mad mean, in traffic. That's for sure. No, you don't want to do that. It's bad. I really think that God puts me in bad traffic situations so that I can really start to manifest and grow that that fruit of the spirit that is patience and peace. And I'm trying, failing miserably, but trying. But it, it's funny whenever you get into discussions about what I would call, and and I almost hate to use this term, but these discussions in which we talk about these sacred cows that exist within Christianity and largely within the restoration movement, sometimes it can get heated. And one of the things I really appreciate about your demeanor and about Kevin's demeanor and really all of the guests that we've had on is that we're able to talk about these things, even if we have divergent viewpoints and we're able to still get along. We're able to still regard one another as brethren. We're able to have these conversations. And even when we disagree, we're able to do so with kindness and with compassion and with understanding. And it's, it's, it's really cool to be able to have that. And baptism is one of those topics that can be a real hot button issue for a lot of people. You know, you can talk about um, certain things within different groups and it's and it's all well and good but whenever you begin to talk about other topics things that largely um are identifying characteristics or identifying doctrines of that particular group well it seems like people can get ramped up and really hostile in a hurry and so it's it's one of those conversations that can be problematic for a lot of folks but i really don't think we're going to have that issue tonight at least i hope we don't if kevin can keep himself under control i think yeah. we'll be okay hey i don't i don't want to mess with patrick either <laughs> you know, I, well I, there are only two immutable facts about the universe uh, of which i'm certain number 1 there is a god number 2 i'm not him <laughs> so i think we'll be fine i think we will so kicking this off, Kevin put together some questions, and I think we can use those as sort of a jumping off point. But where I would like to start, if it's okay with you guys, is just briefly discussing what I'm sure is a shared 
past perspective on baptism and its work and its functionality, being as how we all came from and are largely still involved with the restoration movement tradition, baptism is one of those things within the restoration movement that's incredibly important. And part of the perspective that I have shed, and I'm going to go out on a limb and assume, and I know Kevin has, but I'm also going to assume, Patrick, that you've probably shed as well, is a largely legalistic interpretation of baptism, its purpose, its function, and how it works in terms of the salvation of the soul. Growing up oneness Pentecostal, baptism was, it, it was a linchpin within the oneness Pentecostal doctrine and movement. And that's largely one of the reasons why it was an easier transition for me into the one cup churches of Christ perspective, being able to accept that because in both cases, baptism is an absolute essentiality in terms of salvation. In that perspective, any Christian that claims to be a Christian or that claims that they were saved before they were baptized, they were not truly saved. And if they were baptized, it's questionable as to whether or not they were saved if they weren't baptized in the right way, if the right words weren't said at the point of baptism within one is Pentecostalism, unless baptism is done in Jesus name and those words are uttered and with the mindset that it is for the express purpose of having your sins forgiven, it's a baptism that's that's null and void. If you're baptized in what the oneness Pentecostals call the titles of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, it's not an effective baptism. It's not efficacious to the saving of one's soul. Moving from that into the One Cup Churches of Christ, baptism is that final step in that five-step plan of salvation in which one hears, believes, repents, confesses, and then is baptized and then continues on faithfully after that. If the right words aren't uttered by the person doing the baptizing, but you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If all the parts of the body don't fully go under the water, well, then the baptism needs to be repeated. If it's questionable that the person didn't have the right idea or mindset in their mind of what the purpose of that baptism was, that that baptism is null and void. And a lot of those legalistic positions and modes of thinking I no longer ascribe to those, and I would assume that you guys don't either. But is that a, a good description of what your views on baptism were? Is, is that largely how you viewed it as well, or are there some other nuances there in the past that maybe existed in your mind? Yeah, for for me, I, I believe that I would attract fairly well with the one cup uh, Church of Christ that you were with, uh, at least when it comes to that. Although we didn't have absolute words that had to be said. Uh, some people did insist that you add for remission of sins as you speak, but that was not a necessary element to, um, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, obviously. And we were not like the oneness Pentecostals where we actually had to say the name Jesus. And thank you, by the way, you've made my day by showing me that there was somebody to my right. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, and I grew up in a Taliban wing of a church, and to know there was somebody, to, there was ISIS out there, just makes me warm all over. That's you. that's why I love the one cuppers. You know, I, I was even though I was part of the mainstream conservative element of the Churches of Christ, I can always point to Lee and say there are always those crazies over there. And uh, no, I'm just I'm just messing with you, Lee. But well, I, of course, I, to to go along with what you and Patrick are saying, the same thing. Uh, I, we did take it probably a little bit further in some of the circles when it came to being added to the Lord's church and recognizing that when you're being baptized, according to Acts 2.47, it's the Lord who's adding you to the church. And if you don't have that understanding, 
that you are becoming a part of the quote-unquote one true church, one true kingdom, then you probably really weren't added to begin with. Uh, furthermore, there were some debates regarding the Holy Spirit. On the one side, you had people who claimed that you know, the Holy Spirit was word only. That was the view that I grew up believing for, for many years. And then you had the other side that taught, well, if you were not being baptized with the understanding that you were receiving the Holy Spirit, then you did not receive the Holy Spirit. And I, those were some interesting debates. And so even within this very dogmatic perspective that I held, Patrick, as you pointed out, it can even be extended further into more fundamentalist, legalistic type argumentation of, well, were you really baptized correctly? Were you really baptized? Did you have enough information about the true church? Did you have enough information about the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, and so on and so forth? And so that was something that I did deal quite a, quite a lot with, but or quite a bit with. But also, I was baptized four times. I've been baptized four times, if that gives you any indication of how seriously I took water baptism <laughs> growing up. And I, I think I've talked about this before, but I'll just quickly recap in a few seconds. I was baptized when I was 12 years old for the first time, because that's just kind of the age where everybody else is baptized. I was scared to death of going to hell. All my friends were older than me by about one to two years in our youth group. We didn't have very many people my age. In fact, at that point, I was really the only one my age. And so all of my friends were a couple of years older and they had already been baptized. And they were saying, well, you know, I remember we were at a youth rally or going to a youth rally. And they said, well, what if we die in this church van? You know, you would go to hell because you're not baptized yet. And I just remember being scared to death. So I ended up being baptized and I wanted to right then and there. I needed to be baptized whenever I was ready. I was like, OK, I'm ready. You know, I don't want to go to hell. And I was terrified. I remember shaking as my mom and dad, they were driving me to the church to be baptized. It was on a, I think, Tuesday or Thursday night. And uh, so we were, it wasn't a normal church night. So we were having to meet people there to be able to unlock the doors and meeting a youth minister there who was, who ended up baptizing me. But I was shaking because I was just thinking, what if my mom and dad, what if they get in a car wreck? And what if I die on the way to the baptistry? I would go to hell. So that was the first time I was baptized. The second time I was baptized was uh, a few years later when I think I was uh, 17 or 18. I forget exactly how old I was, but I just started studying. And the more I studied, I thought, well, I, didn't, I wasn't baptized for the right reason. I was baptized because I was afraid of going to hell. And, and that's not really the reason why I wanted to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins and to be added to the one true church. So I had my dad baptize me in our bathtub. And after, upon doing that one time, we were done. You know, my parents kind of thought I was crazy. They're like, son, you were baptized years ago. Why are you doing this? I said, no, just do this, you know? So then um, afterwards, like a couple hours later, I thought, well, did I, did, did I really go all the way under? And did we have enough people to witness this? Because it was just me and my dad. So I had my mom go in there to make sure that everything went under a third time. Then when I went to preaching school, we started studying baptism more. And just to be on the safe side, I was baptized once more. So there's my there's my story, man. <laughs> wow, uh, I'm I'm just, I'm just so glad to be the liberal sitting here. <laughs> I was it's, baptized I was baptized once, and the rest has just been dry cleaning. So I, I'm, <laughs> well, I know myself growing up when this Pentecostal, I was about eleven whenever I was baptized, and then later on whenever. 
I converted over to the one cup branch of the churches of Christ. I was baptized again, of course, because that first baptism didn't count because it was only in Jesus name and the words father, son, and Holy spirit weren't even mentioned. And I didn't do it. I mean, it, yeah, it was for the remission of sins, but the right incantation wasn't uttered if we can put it in those terms. And so I was baptized again, but wow, Kevin, four times. That's, that's pretty wild there, but it, but it, it just goes to the point that baptism is one of those, those things that is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. It's something that we see in scripture. It's something that we see throughout the history of the church. It is something that has persisted even now. Well, and that was really a byproduct of the larger system that I was being taught. And, and, and this goes to show you how this was ingrained in me that you had to get baptism right. And and growing up, growing up to even in the churches of Christ, God's grace covered you on some things, at least Uh, not on really anything we could point out, but we would say it was there somewhere, (laughs) but you, you, you had to be baptized correctly. And so that's why I was baptized four times is because each time I was, it was, it was, I was so afraid. Like, well, what if, what if there's that 1% or that, that, you know, 0.1% that I did not do it correctly and God's grace, I, I don't have God's grace. It's not upon me. And so I wanted to be sure. I wanted to make sure. And if, if you weren't, I mean, if you were not baptized correctly, you did not have a chance. Uh, and there was, we were having a conversation one Sunday after church with some friends and, we were just having this discussion with some some older members of the church too, and someone had died without being baptized, and we were basically all saying that they have no chance. They have no chance of going to heaven, and I remember one of the members, they were an older member, and they said, well, if, if that person can be saved without being baptized, then God's a liar, and, God's, oh, wow. and, 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 God, and God sent Jesus to die for no reason. Because if one person can be saved without baptism, we can all be saved without baptism. And so we know that this individual is, is going to be lost. So that's the kind of stuff I was hearing growing up. But the point I want to emphasize is it was all about that transactional moment of making sure you were in God's grace. That, that moment when you were outside God's grace with zero hope to that moment when you were inside God's grace and, and everything was good. Well, and that just goes to show how something that is in Scripture, something that's reflected in Scripture can be glommed onto, and it can be anything. It can be the one cup on the Lord's table or the drink element that's used or the bread on the table. It can be our manner of dress or the way we wear our hair or don't wear our hair in my case. It can be baptism. Any of those things can be glommed onto and can be morphed into a legalistic caricature of what's actually reflected in Scripture. And I think that in large part, that's how baptism was for you. That's how baptism was for me. Um, But one of the things that's interesting to me about baptism is we kind of start to get into the questions about baptism that we were going to discuss, some of these discussion points that we prepared ahead of time is how baptism is largely, when you look at the body of Scripture, a New Testament phenomenon. You really don't see baptism reflected in the Old Testament. You see the ritualistic washing of the priests before they would go into the tabernacle or into the temple to serve God, but that's that's really kind of a different thing. It, it doesn't really track precisely with baptism as we see it reflected in the New Testament. So the first conversation point that we were going to discuss is 
what role baptism had prior to the New Testament era, what role baptism had prior to the coming of Jesus. How did it come about to be something that people would recognize and it wouldn't be just this completely new concept in the New Testament? Because we see John baptizing in the wilderness we see the followers of Jesus baptizing and baptism being something that the early members of the church did, but it wasn't an entirely new concept. So what is the historical context of baptism? What was its point? What was its purpose? And how was that adopted by the church? So that's something, Kevin, I know you've looked into and Patrick, I'm sure you have as well. So I'm just going to pass the ball over to you guys to kick off our conversation about it. Yeah, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I was actually going to say, go ahead, Kevin, because I'm not a historian by any stretch. Um, You're right. It does show up full-blown, full practice, no explanation uh, whenever we come across John the Baptist. And then we have Paul referring back to uh, the Israelites in the wilderness and saying that they were baptized in the cloud and the fire, uh, indicating that the word baptism has can be divorced from water. Um, and it can just mean to be um, uh, to be surrounded by, to be dedicated to. to um, but whenever we come upon Jesus's time, they've actually carved out places for people to walk downstairs into, uh, you know, submerge themselves, and then walk out the other side. And sometimes, many times in temple precincts, you know, the mikvahot. Um, and so it was. It was a very well known practice. And if um, you know, I want to hand this over to Kevin, but I will say this to me, it's rather like the synagogue. You know, if you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the way that my church, my tribe read the new Testament, well, then every one of the Jews was lost because they have no authority for the synagogue. Yeah. The synagogue uh, uh, just appears rather like baptism. Uh, if you know, after 400 years of silence, which I think now may be close to um, insulting to God, but um, <laughs> he wrote other books, but we just didn't like them. So um, you know, whenever, whenever we came back to the approved library list, um, there was a synagogue full blown. What did Jesus do? He went with it. He adopted it. He spiritualized it. Um, it's and, and Celtic prayers, for example, uh, I was talking about this at our church yesterday you can get um, the, um, the the books of Celtic prayers and it just, they spiritualized everything. As they're lighting the fire in the morning, there's a prayer they say. As they uh, open up the windows, there's a prayer they say. And I, I see Jesus saying, all right, we'll work with the synagogue. You know, all right, well, and it's not like he hadn't thought of things before. He's God, but he didn't say, wait, this is new. We've got to get some history and theology down. Um, and although I hate to use it, the phrase, because I don't like the phrase, it did seem to be an outward sign of an inner drive. Yeah. And, um, and just as a way of, of showing on the outside, like my Muslim friends, when they stand and they pray, they do a ritual with their hands on their face and then down on their body. And then, and I'm not going to go through all of it because I don't want to ever appear to be mocking I, to me, it's not mocking. I'm, I'm impressed with it. They're not actually washing, but they're showing a cleansing of themselves during their prayer repeatedly. Just as some people went right back into the mikvah 
several times and were baptized several times because I guess they felt like you did on the way to uh, um, to camp and, and you thought, right, I best get this done and get this done right. All right, give me the history. <laughs> well, I'm not a historian, that's for certain. And this is something that I've, I have looked into. And it's, it's interesting, though, because... The argument that I was taught when I first started changing and, and studying baptism, especially historically speaking and where it came from, is that water baptism was an act that was already part of the Jewish system and that it took place and it was established sometime in the intertestamental period. As you've discussed, Lee, that this isn't something we see in the Old Testament. And then just, as you said, Patrick, it just pops up in the New Testament. When John the Baptist comes out, he doesn't have to explain water baptism. He doesn't, he doesn't have to go into this great theological um, you know, exegesis of what they need to do and how this is a new practice. I mean, they actually came out to be baptized by John. And so this is, this is just something that was assumed at that time. And authors don't explain things that they think the writers and the listeners are going to just assume. So we have to assume that they assumed what was going on. And this is, was not a new practice at that point in time. It was a practice that had been going on. Outside of that, there are a lot of scholars that I've looked into and church historians, both Christian and non-Christian, who argue that this was this became a practice for Gentiles if they wanted to become a proselyte and convert into the Jewish system, that they would be baptized and they would convert. That said, it looks like that did not come until later, after Jesus. That We don't really start reading about that until later in the, the Babylonian Talmud. And so... That really is, and I think that it's probably a bit of stretch to say that that was going on during the intertestamental period as far as Gentiles being baptized in order to become Jews. Um, could could that have been the case? Yes, but from everything I've studied, and I, I could be wrong on this because, as I said before, I'm I'm not a church historian, and this isn't something I've spent a great deal of time on, but through my limited research, it doesn't appear that there's any evidence that that was going on during the inter intertestamental period. And so what, what we're left with and what does seem to be the case and pretty solidified among scholarship is that they don't know how, but it did become a practice of where if you wanted to follow someone as a rabbi, you would be baptized ceremonially in their name. And Paul seems to make this connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he's writing to the church at Corinth and he says, look, you don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow Peter. You don't need to follow Apollos. You need to follow Jesus. And he builds his case around the idea that they were not baptized in the name of Paul or Peter or Apollos or all these other apostles or church leaders, but they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And even when you look at the Pharisees and the Jews coming to be baptized by, by John, that was just an association. That was a way of them saying that they were going to be John's disciples or that they were going to be Jesus' disciples. And so it's still somewhat of a mystery from everything that I've researched as far as how it really came about specifically. But what it seems that most scholarship, in fact, virtually all scholarship is generally agreed upon is that this was a practice that did start somewhere in the intertestamental period, and it was a practice that signified that you were associated with whoever's name you were baptized in the name of. You were going to be that person's disciple. I, I absolutely agree. And 
let me hasten to say that me saying I'm not a historian was not any way of saying that uh, you have to be a historian to speak to the issue because historians do write books and people read them. Uh, and I was merely handing it off to somebody who's read more of them than me. So I felt like after I said that, that sounded oh, like no, um, <laughs> no not I, at all. No. All right, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. And I agree with you entirely. One thing, um, and I'm again, I've not read as extensively as you. What I do read about the, um, let's say the last 150 years before Jesus, is that Judaism had fractured and that there were zero signs of any healing. And whenever that happens, what you do is you pick your champions. Uh, we do that in politics as well to our, our detriment. And so this being baptized you know, there, there's a time where it was a ritual cleaning, but then it did get to be, well, you know, I'm of Shemai, you know, I'm of this guy, you know, I'm, uh, we're of the more strict school on this one, or I'm of the more, and you would, you would baptize, be baptized by the person you're going to follow. And that would be why I believe with the phrasing that people would come out specifically to be baptized by John mm -hmm. was because yeah. what he was saying, that's where that, that, that was the wagon that they were going to hedge to. Uh, and so being baptized to Christ, you are, you're all in. Um, and I, that all in aspect is, I think the important part of baptism and not the, did we get the hair under? Um, Going into eternity bald as I am. Yeah. That, can't have yeah, that. That's um, well, it's, and, and just as a shrink, when I look at baptism, I see a value there in, in an action. Um, cause I can believe and nobody know I can confess to the walls. I can repent all day. And I do cause I, I need to. Um, but if I'm baptized, I have to put my body into the hands of somebody else. And I find value in the symbolism of losing control for a moment. And, um, so I see a beauty there, but do I see that as an absolute linchpin? I think was a, free, a, a term used earlier. Um, no, I, I think, I think I would rather talk about the messiahship of Jesus being the linchpin. Yes. And everything else is approaching perfection, but if we could get even in the same area, uh, then we wouldn't need Jesus. So, but again, I'm probably skipping ahead. So I'm gonna pull back. <laughs> no, I, I think that that's right. And Kevin, the, the history that you shared there, one of the things that I can't help but think about in terms of baptism, in terms of if we understand that historical context and how baptism came about during that intertestamental period and how it manifested itself in terms of the early church and how the early church took that idea and adopted it as a method of not just being immersed in Jesus and declaring full fidelity and fealty to Jesus, but also there's, there's writings in which Paul seems to indicate that there is something that takes place upon baptism. And, and we'll talk more about this as we go through it, because, you know, we're going to start with it, at least in my mind, if I start with that understanding that baptism is one of those things that is absolutely essential to salvation well, we have to ask the question, well, then how did it come about? And by absolutely essential to salvation, I mean to say that unless someone is baptized, they are not saved and they are not a real Christian. Now, that is not a position I any ascribe to any longer. 
but it is one I did ascribe to. So if I'm thinking through this and I'm thinking in in kind of reverse engineering that to get the context and then move forward from that and reframe it, how does that history alter my understanding of what baptism is and what baptism does? And if I look at what the Bible says in in Hebrews, where um, the Hebrew writer talks about how you know the blood of bulls and goats can't remove sin, and well, then the question in, immediately arises in my mind: Well, then what was the purpose of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? And one of the concepts we've talked about on this podcast plenty of times before is the is the concept of accommodation. And from my perspective in studying, not as much as you have, Kevin, and probably not as much as you have either, Brother Patrick, but my understanding is, is that that was likely an accommodation that God allowed Israel to engage in because it was a concept that would have been familiar to them in their day and their time and in their culture. They accommodated that and they took it and put their twist on it, you might say, to add significance or to ascribe significance to that action in their following God. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, I can see that being the case within the early church as Christianity starts as a Jewish sect, they take baptism, something in which they are ascribing um, their fealty or demonstrating their fealty to a particular rabbi, a particular teacher, a particular school, and demonstrating that they are now followers of that rabbi it seems as though to me from from my limited understanding of this that they did the same thing in the early church they took this practice they adopted it and then a greater degree and detail of meaning was ascribed to it later that goes even further than just demonstrating that they were a follower of Jesus but that at some that somehow in some way baptism is a means by which the blood of Christ is contacted and then sins are forgiven it, it seems as though that there was that baptism itself could be an accommodation that was then co-opted and a greater degree of meaning was ascribed to it. Is that something that seems reasonable in, in your minds whenever we talk about this? Yeah. Um, I, I, I believe that it was another way of pledging allegiance, making a public vow of who you are now uh, following you know, uh, this is the one I have chosen. For example, I think that's what is meant when Jesus says that if you confess me before men, I'll confess to you before my father. And so how, do, how does one make that vow? Um, you know, today you might sign a document or you might raise your hand and pledge allegiance. Uh, then you were baptized with a name put on it. And so I'm I believe that you're on the right track there, Kevin. Yeah, I agree. And I want to go back to what you said earlier, Patrick, to really tie everything together, because God has always been a God of accommodation. If we look at Scripture, we see from the very beginning all the way through, God has accommodated. And I believe that same spirit of accommodation is to occur today and and for, for all time. That is truly part of being a follower of Jesus, and, and that what I call attitudinal truths behind what we see in Scripture is always accommodating to those specific situations and cultures that people happen to find themselves in. And so when you look at, Lee, you pointed out animal sacrifice, and even the temple system, we, we find that it was never part of God's true will for there to be a physical temple per se, but they wanted a temple. And they wanted, David wanted a temple because he lived in, for God 
because he lived in a lovely palace and he has having these internal conflicts that if he's living in this beautiful place, this beautiful home, why doesn't God not have a beautiful palace to live in as well? And we look at that and we read that thousands of years removed, not realizing that David had the cultural understanding that God's had physical dwellings. That's what David believed because that's what everybody believed during that time. And I find it ironic that God doesn't come in and say, you know, David, you're so primitive. You're so immature. You you don't understand who I am. God doesn't do that. Instead, God gives him the go-ahead, not necessarily him. He tells him that it's going to be his son Solomon, but he he goes through and he gives instructions for how the temple's going to be built and how it's supposed to be made. And, and it's very, very intricate, all the details of how it's supposed to be done and constructed. And we see that God is accommodating all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. God is a God of accommodation. And so the same is true, I believe, with water baptism. This is something that the Jews were already very familiar with. And so Jesus wasn't going to come in and say, let me start something that is the antithesis of what everybody else is doing. And let me come in and create a a, a complicated system that nobody's ever heard of to signify that you're my followers. You know, instead of being water baptized, you're going to have to walk on coals for 10 minutes and that's going to purge you of your sins. And then you'll be a follower of me. Jesus could have done something like that. Thank goodness he didn't. Um, But instead, he took what was already at play. He took what they were able to understand, and he worked with that. And I think that's the kind of God we see in Scripture consistently and coherently, is God is going to take what we're already doing, and I like the words you use, Patrick, and adopt it and, and really make it his own to his own advantage so that it's easy to communicate with other people. That, that, that's an easy idea of this is what this looks like. If you're water baptized in somebody's name, that's just another way of saying, I'm going to follow that person. Let's go ahead and use what everybody else is doing. And so when they did that, it continued to develop. And even in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it seems to even carry on a new idea. There's even new symbolism that it is identifying yourself with a death burial, and resurrection of Jesus in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. And so we don't really see that idea at the very beginning, but we later see how Paul is is kind of enmeshing that and tying it into the death, burial, and resurrection and giving it extra symbolism. And, you know, I think it's funny because today we talk about how baptism is all about the death, burial, and resurrection and how this is what it symbolizes. Baptism was already a practice. Paul kind of just added that in there. <laughs> I mean, this is just something that he's like, oh yeah, and, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection. And, and you know, it's, it's Lee, I, I think about uh, you coming out of the one cup, how you came to the understanding that maybe the symbolism you were taught to believe in the one cup and the one loaf wasn't necessarily the... I won't say the truth, but it may not have been the biblical truth, but it may not have been the intention. Yes, there you go. But it, but it is still something that can be very meaningful. It it doesn't negate the fact that when you partake of one container or one loaf, it doesn't negate the fact of that symbolism you were taught to believe in. But as you pointed out, it may not have been the original intention, but it could have become that. And if it does become that for somebody, then there's certainly nothing wrong with that. 
the um, I, I can still remember uh, we were still living in Scotland and the BBC was doing a program on faith, which was very rare. Um, you know, religious programming doesn't really make a dent over there. Um, but they showed in a Baptist church um, a young lady standing there in the gown and the, and the minister was down in the water. And he looked at her and called her by name and asked if she believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and she did. And then he asked, do you want to give your life to him and serve you serve him the rest of your life? And she said, yes. He said, then come and be baptized. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, I think she's my sister. It was the first time that little crack in the wall had occurred. Later, I'd read Thomas Campbell. Um, and, you know, I liked him a lot better than Alex, but there you are. Um, <laughs> the, 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 he... Um, he said that you're a Christian if you profess Christ and by your character, you show that you profess Christ. That was, that was enough for them. You know, and when Alex, Alexander Campbell was pushed by the lady from Lunenburg, Virginia, on whether you had to be baptized to be saved, he said he could not make baptism that one thing. And that, um, that caused quite a split. It looked uh, for a while like a big hemorrhage, um, but it was probably the wife of John Thomas who started the Christ of Delphians, but uh, they, they launched and, and fizzled. Uh, there are very, very few Christ of Delphians left, but it was, oh, he's not pure enough. And I, and I think it all comes down to this. I was taught that there was a pattern to get to a person. Yeah. And I have since learned that there are no relationships worth having that have a pattern requirement. Um, I've been married to my girlfriend for 43 years. She does not have a list of things that I must be, say, and do to remain married to her, and nor do I have one for her. And in fact, accommodation, um, uh, Brother Kevin, uh, are, if we had such a list, it would change. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has changed dramatically and I expect it to continue to because we're not invested in a pattern but a person. Mm -hmm. Pattern got us there. We stood up, we exchanged vows because that was the expected cultural and religious component. But it was our desire to be married and stay together the rest of our life. It was our desire to be with that person. Um, now, to speak to Kevin and baptize four times, did I really know what I was getting into when I said I do? <laughs> my wife is That's my wife making noise from another room right now. Um, I was just renewing my vows each time. Is all I was. Well, was that I don't. I don't even get the point of that. Um, <laughs> I'm Scottish. If I change my mind. I'll let you know. You know I'll leave you a note on the fridge. Um, I, no, I don't think we knew, but we did know that we'd made a decision about that person. Mm -hmm. And that has kept us through nations and through ages and through aging. And I expect it to keep us going forward. So it wasn't a pattern. I don't remember much about the wedding, uh, frankly. To me, it was, it was, it was a very um, horribly overdone requirement when all we wanted to do is be with each other. Uh, and, and yet we had some hurdles and we had to pay people. 
So, and, and we were patternistic. We weren't allowed to have any music, um, uh, recorded music or live, other than a few songs. So I had a friend of mine. Uh, he came and stood a foot off the church property and played the pipes. Nice. That's cool. We could hear them inside and we could see the harumphs of others, but uh, we, we grinned. But anyway, um, off off the subject. So it's not really, to me, baptism is all about, are you all in for Jesus? And are have you said so? Have you made it plain? This is who we are. This is what I do. Then you are as much baptized with Christ as those in the wilderness were baptized in cloud and fire, because that's where they were going. That's who they were following. Well, and all of that, I track with all of that. But one of the areas that I really have a hard time moving past is so much of the language that is in Scripture related to baptism. When baptism is discussed in terms of a forgiveness of sin, somehow being tied to that. And I can see the point that whenever you're all in, like you say, Patrick, whenever you're all in and following Jesus and your heart belongs to him, your actions portray that your heart belongs to him, your sins are forgiven whenever full fidelity is pledged unto Christ. And baptism is one of the ways in which that fidelity is demonstrated. I can track with that, but there's a part of me, and I, I'm, I really think that it has to do more with my upbringing and with baptism being so heavily emphasized for my entire life, both in the you know, it's it's funny. It seems like I really like the number one, whether it's the oneness Pentecostalism or the one cup. It's <laughs> and you know, the one it, church, man. And the one cool. church. If there's anything else, put me down for one. Um, well, one I'm, life. I'm, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, it the language in Scripture is very precise, and I I'm right with you. I get that. Therefore, if somebody asks me, "Do I have to be baptized to be saved?" I'll tell them. What I can tell you is this, in the early church, they were baptized and they fully expected it to be um, where the, their sins were forgiven. I will drive 12 hours to baptize somebody. You know, our church is a worldwide church. Um, and so we, we, somebody wants baptized, we go and we encourage baptism. I think it's, I think it's a very important thing. And that language cannot be um, tossed aside but I think where Kevin may go, and Kevin, I'm going to put words in your mouth that you're allowed to spit back at me. Um, I think where Kevin may go on this is that this was the way they had to phrase things. We have other words because we've had 2,000 years since then. Uh, today we might say, if you follow Christ, your sins are forgiven. And I would be absolutely correct. I, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us of all sins. Yes. So when, when did Christ forgive my sins? Um, he's still doing it. Yeah. Uh, when did he start? When I dedicated my life to him. How did I do that? I stood up and told people about it and I was baptized. Do I have to make it? Do we have to have two witnesses, Lee uh, uh, or Kevin? Um, you know, do we have to get mom in to the bathroom? By the way, my there, there's one church, we, one aspect, my church is more conservative. Because we believe that scripture said that Philip went down into the water with the eunuch. Mm -hmm. So bathtub baptism didn't work. So number five may be headed your way. Great, man. I got (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I I did there. So I'll let you kick it back. 
Uh, well, I was just going to say, Lee, that, I think that's a phenomenal question and a great point. You know, those passages are passages that all of us who grew up, especially in the churches of Christ, but probably even a lot of evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches, they may have understood the idea of forgiveness of sins, but Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21, I, I, I had a whole chart. And, and you both of you probably have seen this before, being in the Churches of Christ, but it showed all the instances in Acts where everyone was baptized and all the examples of people being baptized. And whenever you preach Jesus, you what, what do you immediately see happening? People are being baptized. And I even used to say you can't preach the man without preaching the plan. So if you're going to preach Jesus, you have to preach baptism. And I, You and your quips, man. I, you got I, so many good I, quips. I had so many sermons on water baptism. And I preached, no joke, at a, we called it a tent meeting. We actually didn't have a tent. It was just an outside meeting under a pavilion a few years ago. It's been more than a few years ago, probably about eight or nine years ago now. I preached two and a half hours just on the topic of water baptism. And, and people were, they were ready to just get drowned in the water so that I would shut up and finally just end the sermon. To our listeners, that's probably not a surprise since Lee and I usually can go, you know, hours and hours and still not think anything of it on this podcast. That So that said, I don't think the debate or the disagreement is over what the Bible says or the attachment of forgiveness of sins. But what does it mean? And first of all, what did it mean to them? And what does it mean to us today? And before I answer that question, just because I'm thinking about it right now, Patrick, Talking about wives and all of that good stuff and bagpipes, this has nothing to do with anything, but this just came to my mind. Are you a fan of the Celtic woman? Um, not all that much, no. Um, I, I've certainly listened to them because I, I'm married. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and we, Amen, we brother. A bag or something. Um, my, my mother actually loves listening to them. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I've, I've heard them. And I've even seen Celtic Thunder live here in Nashville. Yeah, um, which, which they're not really there for me. They're there for the ladies, but fair enough. Well, um, the only the only reason I ask is because I just you reminded me. I took Bethany um, a couple of weeks ago. We went to go see the Celtic Woman in Oklahoma City, and and I, you know, not the biggest fan either. But after watching them. You know, I love the bagpipes. I mean, they had someone come out there and play the bagpipes, and it was it was a really cool thing. Once again, this conversation has nothing to do with baptism, but it does have everything to do about being a faithful disciple to someone called your 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 partner. And I certainly am to my wife, and I took her to see the Celtic woman. But anyway, so back to the regular broadcasting of what we're talking about here on baptism. So, Lee, this is where I'm at on this, and I know you and I have already had this conversation, but this is really what changed my view on this is once again, it's not about the actual verses. It's not about what the verses say. It's what they would have meant. And there's no doubt that in order for someone at that point in time, at that culture to identify as a disciple of Jesus, they needed to be baptized. So I don't think someone can make the case that baptism is not biblical. Baptism is clearly biblical. And I think everybody during that point in time that was coming to Christ, that wanted to be a follower of Jesus, they were certainly being water baptized. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, what do we see in the Great Commission? You're to go out and you're to make disciples. And how do we do that? You're to baptize them. Why? Why do we keep seeing baptism occur over and over and over and over again? 
because that was something in which the whole culture at that time, they would, would have been indoctrinated in the idea that if you want to follow someone religiously, you do that by being baptized in their name. And vice versa, if you've been baptized in that person's name, that was a way that someone could come back to you if you were not being faithful to that rabbi and say, look, you were baptized in their name. You made this commitment and you are no longer following through with that commitment, which is the exact argument that Paul makes. Paul says, this is in first Corinthians chapter one. He says, this is who you were baptized into the name of Jesus. You are to follow him. You are his disciple. You are not mine. You are not baptized into my name. This was so important, so much so that in Acts chapter 19, those who have been baptized in the name of John or to follow John's baptism are or John's baptism are seen being rebaptized to pledge their allegiance no longer to John, but to Jesus. And so this was a very, very important thing. Now, that being said, we have to ask ourselves the question, what about today? What about as cultures continued? Sure, this has continued to be a tradition, no doubt about it. But water baptism today is certainly not a cultural aspect of our society, even though it was back then. So I have no problem with people being water baptized. In fact, I don't know of a single Christian denomination that doesn't practice at least some form of baptism, at least in some some ways. It may be completely different in the ways that we were taught to believe in, Um, but they certainly did practice water baptism. And so or certainly do practice some forms of water baptism. But my question is this. When you look at the idea of the forgiveness of sins, and hold on one second because I'm getting a, my power is running low and I have no idea why. My computer's plugged up. So let me see what's going on here real quick. Let's pause that train of thought. Or go ahead. Go ahead, brother, while Kevin's figuring that out. I would just bring up um, something can be scriptural. Something can be commanded. And yet that command can be abrogated and laid aside because of situations and change in circumstance. For example, um, the Ark of the Covenant. God had some very, very specific rules about forgiveness uh, being linked to access to the Ark of the Covenant, high priest and such. And they lost it. Um, there, Even before they lost it, there was some weirdness going on. One guy touched it and... Um, was killed. Another family got to keep it in her house for a long time and then moved it. And so God understood circumstances and intent. And then when they lost it, it could be Nebuchadnezzar. It could have been Antiochus. We have no idea. It could have been Bob's turn to look at it and watch it. And he forgot whatever it was (laughs) by the time John the Baptist is the way that uh, is there. The Ark of the Covenant is a distant memory and lost to history. And yet God was still forgiving sins yeah, yeah, and God was still welcoming people in. And so there was, there was an absolute command, series of commands at some great detail that were laid aside because, well, things have changed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, I don't know what happened there. My computer was plugged in, but it just popped up and said, <laughs> it's about to die. And I looked down and it said less than 10%. So I have replugged it and hopefully that'll work. But I'm sorry about that, but to get back to the train of thought, um, forgiveness of sins. And so when you look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, 
Paul makes the case that baptism is a type of circumcision, that it is even considered a New Testament, or we will, won't say even New Testament because the New Testament wasn't around during that point, but a New Covenant circumcision, if you will. So if Paul is paralleling baptism to circumcision, and we go back to see, well, what did circumcision serve under the old law? Well, clearly it was very important. And to me, it parallels the modern day debate of you have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to do it this way. You have to do it. You're, you're out if you're not doing it exactly this way. Taking something that was cultural and accommodating it, but then in, instead of people identifying that that circumcision was a way to grow, to identify yourself to be a follower of God, they were using that as a religious ritual to condemn other people. They were using it as a way to distinguish themselves from others and condemn those who had yet to be circumcised. And so when you look at the practice of circumcision and say that it is a new t- the New Testament circumcision is baptism, how does that change things? And what exactly does that mean? So when you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 10, Paul makes the argument, was Abraham justified before or after he was circumcised? And of course, the argument is he was justified before. And he goes on to make the argument, if, it was, if he was justified through his circumcision, then it was of works. But if it was before circumcision, then it was of faith. It, it can't be both. That doesn't mean circumcision wasn't very important. That doesn't mean that circumcision, especially during that time, was not used as a sign of the covenant because it certainly was. But it got to the point where people literally were missing the mark with circumcision. Instead of just realizing that that was an identifying marker and association that I'm a follower of God, it got to the point of saying, well, I'm better than you because you've not done this. And even if you are following God, if you're not doing it the way I'm doing it, and if you haven't been circumcised, insert the story of the Good Samaritan here, then you're you're not faithful. You're not living the life that you need to be living, which we know that's not the case. And the very argument Paul makes is that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by grace. Now, This is when I would have made the argument that baptism is not a work of man, it's a work of God, which is a bunch of garbly goop, because either it's a work or it's not a work. And if it's something that I am physically doing in order to make a transaction, then it is something that is a work. And that's how I view baptism for so long, is that this was a transaction. It was something that I had to do in order to get the grace of God. But when I started looking at passages like Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul paralleled it to circumcision, and then later makes the argument to the Romans that Abraham, or to the church at Rome, that that Abraham was justified before his circumcision, then how does that change water baptism? All right, now, the next point, or the piece of puzzle that really put things together for me, is animal sacrifice. If we want to talk about the phrase forgiveness of sins, let's go to the animal sacrifice system. Because if we think that forgiveness of sins is attached to water baptism, it's got nothing on animal sacrifice. And I think you brought this up earlier. Look at just Leviticus chapter 5, and you'll see over and over, do this and your sins will be forgiven. Do this and your sins will be forgiven. Do this and your sins will be forgiven. Then you have the, the, the day of what? The day of atonement where sins were forgiven. How were sins forgiven? Well, you went and you had to go bring an animal sacrifice to the priest. The priest made that sacrifice, so on and so forth. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, not baptism, animal sacrifice is attached to the forgiveness of sins. But then you come to the book of Hebrews, 
And we find out that, and even before the book of Hebrews, we read about prophets who say that, hey, it was never about animal sacrifice. It's not about animal sacrifice. Even God makes statements through prophets, and I'll read just a few of these, for example. Um, We read Psalm 40, verse 6. It says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Sure, sure the law requires that. But the point is, is that they had missed the point of why they were supposed to be offering those sacrifices. And we read of other passages, and there's a lot here. I'll just read a couple of them. Psalm 51, 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 111 says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the blood of lambs or of goats. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6 6. These are not all the passages. There's quite a few of these. But here's the connection that I'm making. Yes, we can look and see that there's no doubt forgiveness of sins was attached to animal sacrifice. But here's the question. Was that a representation of the forgiveness of sins they were receiving? Or was that a transactional payment that had to be made in order for them to receive the forgiveness of sins? Well, we, we know from Hebrews chapter 10, it wasn't a transactional payment that had to be made. It was the fact that it demonstrated their forgiveness of sins, that God was forgiving them. And that was their way of God accommodating them, or God's way, should I say, of God accommodating them during that time Because the animal sacrifices were not for God. They were for the people. (laughs) And water baptism was not for God. It was for the people. And so when I look at Hebrews chapter 10, what I see is that, yes, forgiveness of sins is all over animal sacrifice, just as forgiveness of sins is all over water baptism. But the point is the association and the representation, not some sort of weird spiritual transaction that's taking place that we don't see. And even 1 Peter 3, it's not the removal, it's not some sort of physical act that's that's saving us. It's not the removal of the filth of flesh, but it's the answer to the good conscience. Why? Because once again, it's an identification with Jesus that during that point in time, they were signifying that they were going to be followers of Jesus Christ. So with that said, I mean, there's a lot of questions that could follow that, and I hope I didn't go off too much in different directions. But the point is, when you look at circumcision and animal sacrifice, I don't think you can, I don't think you can uh, remove it from water baptism in terms of how God has always used rituals. So I think whatever, whatever we say forgiveness of sins meant with animal sacrifice and, 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 and the importance of circumcision and all those types of things, the same has to be true with water baptism and vice versa. All right, uh, I'll fill the silence. <laughs> That's not something I normally do since I charge by the hour. Silence is... is <laughs> um, Send Kevin can, the bill for that. No, I, I'll, yeah. I'll do, oh, that'd um, be too expensive for that. The, um, you wouldn't be I'm filling not, the silence, I'll tell you that. It, <laughs> I remember the chart you talked about where every instance there was baptism. But again, that was that was... And that was in uh, film strip four of the Joel Miller film strips, by the way. 
uh, and I even had the Star Bible Company New Testament and Psalms, which maybe you are too young to to remember. But no, I remember. I remember. Yeah, uh, it had uh, Lee. For those of you that were in, uh, you know, ISIS at the time, the um, it had passages, and you were to read a passage, and then you were to go to a certain page, and then read another passage. And so we cherry picked our way through. It was very much like those 1970s and 80s and early 90s wonderful wee books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, yes. Those were wonderful. Yeah. Oh, were they not? And I look at that now and I and and one part of me you know, is appalled. Another part is amused. But if I can just be honest, I think it kind of is a Choose Your Own Adventure, you know, Paul's faithfulness doesn't look anything like my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He finished his course. Uh, I I am shocked as well as all of Judaism when Paul says circumcision means nothing. I'm gone. Who are you, Paul? <laughs> say this. And and then as uh, you know, as Kevin quoted him a while ago and made a couple of comments, I'll see him patched together different parts of uh, of different verses we would call them today from different books out of context not talking about what the author was talking about and makes a new point and i'm going i didn't know we were allowed to do that but then you have jesus who you would have thought had read leviticus and deuteronomy and yet he uh, fraternizes with the Samaritan woman who's been divorced, 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 divorced. Um, he fraternizes with anybody. And the whole book of Luke is sitting down to eat with people you're not allowed to eat with. And in the first century, of course, you are who you eat with. Yeah. And it was almost as if Jesus were saying, all right, this is what you thought we wanted. But you were you're locked into a pattern when we really wanted to invite you to a dance with a person and therefore there's always movement, there's always change. There's always movement. If you don't, and and I, I've, I've met the church folk that say, I just don't like change. If you don't like change, you pick the wrong universe. (laughs) It's an inevitability. It is. And, and therefore why would we think that God is not, well, for example, my Amish friends who, I, I don't think I'm going to be insulting since they have no access to this. But why would we think God liked all technology up till 1830? <laughs> and then he froze. Yeah. Locked down. Uh, I, I think God's still moving. I don't understand why people think the canon of scripture was shut. I don't understand by whose authority... We've been told the Holy Spirit retired and he's away now. Uh, I think God's got things planned that we have yeah. we have no idea. I mean, Neanderthal didn't really expect another group of people to show up on the horizon. We're not necessarily the last in line. Yeah. And God's going to be able to handle whatever's out there. So we, with our primitive understanding, um, we do what we need to do. And ritual is important to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, you know, we do funerals. Um, we don't do it for the dead person. We do it for the life. And we, and we get this. 
And so I'll do baptism and I push it and I love it because I think it's really, really good. And it's something that somebody can look and see. And, and that gives them that little bit of something to hold on to. As Martin Luther would say, whenever he would get tempted and angry, and he had quite the temper, he's quite the racist too. Uh, but he would, he would stop and he would say out loud, but I have been baptized yeah. as a way to correct himself. Hey, choose your own adventure. What does it take to keep your face toward Jesus and moving? Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, I, I agree completely with what you're saying. And a lot of this is going to make more sense to our audience too, especially once once my book finally gets out there, because I do I do present what I believe to be a a Christocentric hermeneutic. I call it a, an attitudinal hermeneutic. And that is that when we look to scripture, we don't go to find practices to mimic, but what we should be looking for are attitudes. And we look to the fruit of the spirit to imitate because that's something that's universal. That's something that we can always apply in every single, single culture, because there's very few things right now anyway, in the new Testament that Christians who claim to follow the new Testament are actually following. Um, and in fact, this is a debate or not a debate, I guess, but a discussion, kind of an ongoing discussion I have with a friend of mine who's, who's a bit more conservative than I am. And I said, look, you're not a New Testament Christian. I said, aside from baptism and the Lord's Supper, I said, you're hardly doing anything that is that is of New Testament Christianity. And, and, on, and on top of that, the most controversial issue in the New Testament is circumcision. Something that we could literally, by and large, care less about today. It doesn't impact our churches. It's not consequential. But yet it was such a delicate topic back then because the Bible speaks to different cultures. But those attitudes, the love ethic of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit. I, I look at John 15, 16, and 17, and, and that's really the hermeneutic I go by because we see that Jesus teaches his disciple to do two, th two things. Number one, love others and bear the fruit. And those things were always to do no matter what. In any culture, in any time period, we are always to live out those attitudinal truths. Aside from that, everything is rooted in culture. I was talking to another friend of mine who's an elder in more of a conservative church of Christ, and he said, well, Kevin, basically what you're saying is culture dictates truth. I said, no, no, no. Culture dictates how truth is manifested, and it always has. I said, give me a point in time when history has not uh, proven this to be the case. When there is, no, where, where there is a time, and this is why I think it's so hard for many Christians to accept, because we want to look just at today. We don't want to look at the past to see how Christianity has really been a not one stream of one religion, but it has been multiple streams of different religions that it has really expressed itself very differently from another, one from another. And so what is true, what is objective, are those attitudes that Jesus taught us to live by, that everything, everything hangs on two things, loving God and loving people. And so everything has to be derived through that, so, or, and filtered through that. So that being said, Lee, kind of back to, to, the, to the question you asked, because I think a lot of people are going to have that question. Well, what about all the times, you know, it talks about forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins. This goes back to this. What is the point of water baptism? Is it A, a transaction that I have to do in order to be in God's good favor, or B, was water baptism a cultural practice at that time that was utilized to signify and identify yourself with Jesus as being your Lord, 
Jesus as being your rabbi, that you are going to submit to him as your teacher, as your savior, as your follower, and so on. So if we come to a different time period, and by the way, I don't think we're living in that time period right now, because as I pointed out, by and large, most churches, most denominations practice some form of water baptism. There's some ritual. It may be, uh, you know, baptism as a child and then maybe later confirmed with another baptism or something like that. But th- there's some sort of ritualistic water baptism that just about every church practices. But what if there comes a day in time when that's no longer relevant at all? And there's another way, culturally speaking, in which people are making it known that they're followers of Jesus. Do I think that that would be wrong? Absolutely not. In fact, I would think it would be wrong if we don't eventually move to that. I'm not saying that we should move to that right now, but as time continues to progress, that that's even what we see the Bible doing. That's what Paul did. That's that's really the movement of the whole Bible. And so the focus is not so much on making sure we're getting to the water. The focus is making sure on we realize what getting to the water represented, which was a dedication to follow Jesus. Well, and to that end, I think one of the things that we see in terms of baptism in this discussion of baptism and its place within its cultural context and within the cultural context of the church, we see baptism retaining its relevance specifically because of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, you say that there's no denomination. I can't think of one either. I'm sure there yeah. is one. And, and there might 40, be. Yeah. Salvation Army nor the Society of Friends, who we generally call Quakers, has any form of baptism, although individual salvationists uh, do practice it as a denominational uh, oh, interesting. Uh, character. Both of them have stripped out all sacraments. And oh, by wow. the way, Kevin, yeah, uh, Kevin, by the way, yeah, they, uh, Salvation Army, uh, nor the Society of Friends. Well, now, Patrick, you know we're talking about real Christians and real churches, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm just uh, kidding for those who cannot see me. Well, <laughs> The um, and by the way, your friend who who has only baptism in the Lord's Supper only has baptism because we've turned the Lord's Supper into the Lord's inadequate snack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's not any. It, we've we've stripped the purpose yeah. away from. It. We always say the chip, the sip, and the tip is what we used to call it. Well, yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, if if somebody shrinks baptism down to a sprinkling, we're appalled. Mm-hmm. And I I find. That inconsistency. Oh, good point. Say that again. (laughs) Well, we um, have stripped down the supper, which was a communal meal of great joy with coming and going. You didn't get Sundays off back in the day. Uh, We've stripped it down to a wee bit of of grape juice and, um, well, during COVID, a little slice of styrofoam. And and we claim that and and we say, well, that's that's enough. But if we strip the body of water down to a few drops, we were appalled. Ooh. And that's inconsistent. So instead of being immersed with, a, with, with, with the fruit of the vine, we've kind of sprinkled ourselves with the fruit of the vine. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it isn't, but I'll go with no, it. No, I'm just... Come on, entertain well, and that And that gets back to that larger point <laughs> of of the idea of the culture of church keeping baptism relevant 
even though baptism in its in its formation in its practice in terms of pouring or sprinkling or full immersion that has evolved and changed and that divergence that's occurred within churches we see that reflected even though the symbolism is largely retained of being one who is pledging their fealty unto Christ and it's interesting that parallel between the lord's supper and baptism patrick that you bring up because i hadn't thought about it in those terms but in, in terms of the cultural relevance, it remains. And it's still hard for me a lot of times to think past that idea of, of being saved without it, of people who are sincere followers of Christ. I still find myself from time to time wondering, have they been baptized? Do they have the right idea of, of what baptism is? Because that was such a prevailing, dominant perspective in my own mind for so long that little voice still remains in my subconscious from time to time. And then I have to remind myself, it's not my place to judge another man's servant. It's not my place to stand in judgment of someone and whether or not they're a real follower of Jesus, dependent on whether or not they have engaged in or submitted to the same rituals that I have. Are they following Jesus? Are they manifesting that fruit of the spirit? Are they following God? and showing that love for God demonstrated in their love for fellow man and and, stepping away from that. It's been difficult for me. I don't mind saying it. And and I'm right there with you. Uh, I, my faith was, was beaten about the head and shoulders repeatedly when I I would see more love and grace in others than I saw in our baptized kind. And Baptism didn't make us unloving. It was it was the concept of substituting patternism for love. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and and that's um, it, it was brutal uh, for me to have to deal with this and and see this. If I may use just a very simple illustration, uh, I love dogs. Uh, I don't have one now because my life is in a slingshot, traveling all over the U.S. and and meeting with people, um, but. I always had them. I trained them. I loved them. Dogs are very, very bright. I had border collies. Just, you know, they're they're smarter than most people I know. They're amazing animals. Yeah. yeah, they are. But you cannot point anything out to a dog. If you physically point, they will look at your finger. Now, if you, you can give commands that they know to go look and such, but I'm, I'm talking about if you physically try to point, they look at your finger. I truly believe the Bible is a finger pointing to our Savior. Mm -hmm. And too many people are staring at the finger and trying to to dissect the finger and figure out the symbolism of every part of the finger and missing the Jesus. Um, When I was a boy, we we never hunted. You know, hunting is something in Britain that only English people named Nigel get to do. <laughs> you know, if you're Scottish and, and, and you're chosen, you get to hold the deer when Nigel shoots it. That's how we lost Hamish. But um, I, hunting is just not a part of my culture. So driving along people all my life in, a, in America, they'll point over and say, oh, look, turkeys. Oh, look, deer. Oh, I've never seen anything because I wasn't trained to see it. When I started reading the Bible... Uh, after long arguments with God, a different subject for another day, uh, I kept seeing love all through it, 
that I'd never been allowed to see before because I wasn't trained for that. I was trained to find the function, the ritual, the necessary steps. After finding the love in it, it appalls me that other people don't see it. Now I yeah. judge them you know, for being where I was. And, and later I will judge people for being where I am now. Yeah. yeah. Um, we all ate the fruit in the garden and we're all suffering from that judgmentalism. But I just keep, I, I keep praying to God, please don't let me focus on the finger. Mm-hmm. I love that analogy. And you put it so perfectly. And it's, it's hard when you've been conditioned to see something or to skim over and not see something like the turkey, the deer. I didn't grow up hunting. I've since gotten into it. It's something that my oldest daughter and I enjoy doing together. I wouldn't have thought she would be all about it. She's 12 and her 10th birthday present was a a youth 270 Winchester. And She's a great markswoman, and she is an excellent shot, and she is chomping at the bit to go hunting this year and to hopefully get a, a buck and maybe a doe and get some meat in the freezer. So we're excited about that, but you but you have to be trained to look for that. And we were you have to be trained to look for the deer, to look for the signs of the deer, and to see them, and to see that motion, to see that pattern. And we were trained to see a pattern in Scripture. We were trained to pursue that ritual. We were trained to elevate that ritual. And and that's largely how I talked, I guess I don't want to say taught myself out of, but studied myself out of that one cup perspective and one cup paradigm was thinking to myself when Jesus said, you know, whenever he took bread and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And when he took the cup, did the writer of Matthew really intend to focus his attention on the cup? Is that really what his attention was focused on? Because in the one cup group, that's what we say is take the cup. Jesus took the cup and I'm going to do what Jesus said. And Jesus did this. And he said, do this. That means take one cup and drink after it. We've looked past Jesus at that ritual. We've completely missed him for that. And I think in large part, the same thing has happened with baptism. We have made becoming right with God, the atonement, becoming at one with God, the at one, the atonement. It's, it's predicated on our understanding of baptism and what it is instead of the redemptive act of Christ on the cross. And in a way, you know, I really believe, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, I think we have sometimes made the Bible an idol or not, maybe not the Bible itself, but our own perspective of the Bible and what it is that's become, Yeah. And I think we've done the same thing with baptism, or at least I have. If you weren't baptized the right way in the right place by the right people with the right words being uttered when it was done, it's of no effect. And you're standing before God is null and void. And putting baptism in its proper place and recognizing it within its proper context it does a lot to undo that. And I'm sure it's going to be this way for a lot of our listeners. It's still hard for me to undo that sometimes. Well, it, it still goes, rears its head. So much of this goes back to just our approach to scripture. What is that? Oh, yeah. What is our expectation? What do we think we should be getting out of scripture? How do we think we should be approaching scripture and appropriating it for our use today? And really that's, that's the true conversation. So many debates have nothing to do with what the Bible says and in large part, a lot of debates, they really don't even have anything to do with what the Bible means, but how does how, how do we apply it today in our time, in our culture, and how has 
how have things changed? How should things change? What should we be taking out of Scripture? What should we be leaving behind? What are some things that may still be good that we need to be participating in? But ultimately, as you pointed out, Patrick, the main question is, what are we doing with all of this? Are we just being ritualistic for ritualistic sake? Are we just doing these things to make sure that we're doing our part in Christianity so we can go, whew, all right, good. Now I can say that I've got salvation. Are, are we doing all of these things so that we can grow closer to God and learn how to love others better, to realize that love does no harm to a neighbor, that we, that, that we are to treat others the way we want to be treated? I think the, the story of the Good Samaritan is so powerful because he didn't have all of these ritualistic things right. He would have not been circumcised. He would have not um, known anything uh, about proper Jewish behavior other than maybe a few things in the Torah. And even then, it would have been their own understandings and, and probably very different from a lot of the popular Jewish rabbis. And yet Jesus uses him as an example to show what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to look to what it looks like to inherit eternal life, someone who loves their neighbor as themselves. We can talk about baptism all day long, and unfortunately, many people have shown hate toward their neighbor over the issue of baptism, <laughs> De completely defeating the purpose of showing that you are a follower of Jesus in the first place and turning everything into this ritualistic transaction. The fact that I was baptized four times may seem crazy, but in reality, it was something that I thought I had to do because baptism was about me. Baptism was about me getting it right. Baptism was about what I was doing for God. Now I understand that even in its original context, baptism was simply giving into and showing that you agree with what Jesus has already done for us. And those are two completely different ideologies, unfortunately. And there are a lot of Christians who still hold to that belief. And I did for many years. That's why I don't judge people who still have a very strict literalist view of baptism and not just a literalist view, but a view that believes that they have to directly apply that to themselves today. I have no problem with that um, in and of itself, especially if that's what that person is convicted that they must do. The issue comes in, though, is when we draw lines with others. When we look to people who were baptized even, but they weren't baptized with the same understanding that we were. And Patrick, going back to your example, I think out of everything we said, at least what I've heard, uh, I think the best thing that anybody can take away from this is the point you, or one of the best things is the point you made about the Lord's Supper. Is when you look at communion, all churches, for the most part, have adapted to cultural norms of what a Lord's Supper should look like today versus what it looked like in its original context. I love that point. I made kind of a stupid point earlier about it, but I love that point because that is such a powerful, powerful illustration to show that we are already accommodating our cultural norms. We're already adopting new practices because we don't treat it as a meal like they did. We treat it as just, well, you just, you know, you, we basically have reduced it down to the bare minimum <laughs> of saying, well, at least we're taking of the unleavened bread, at least we're taking of the fruit of the vine. But here's the thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Yeah, you know, and and used to, I, I would have probably argued because when I did start changing, I realized that we weren't doing the Lord's Supper properly. And I looked down on others and say, hey, we need to turn it more into a meal. And if we do, that's fine, too. But the point is, is that it's OK 
it's okay because the point is we're still communing, right? The point is we're still coming together and remembering what Jesus did. And is that not the point of the Lord's Supper anyway, is to remember what Jesus did for us? I, I agree. And I don't think you should take it until somebody falls out of the window and dies. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> um, we, had, we had a street character in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, very famous. He, he passed away several years ago, but he was in and out of uh, mental hospitals all of his life and in and out of rehabs and the like. And he would just come up to you. Uh, and, and none of us were afraid of him. We understood he was a harmless fella. They just come right into your face and he'd say, I'm sane. I can prove I'm sane. I've got papers that say I'm sane. Where are your papers? Can you prove you're sane? And I was going, you know, fair enough. I know I don't. I don't have those. But I realized later that I was doing the same thing internally. I'm a Christian because I was baptized and because I do the five acts of worship. And because, and Jesus really didn't get a shout out there. Um, it was it was because of what I was yeah. doing. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when it comes to Bible, um, I this is where I get attacked most, but I'll just say my Monday morning messages have been kind of deconstructing a lot of that, and they're really going to do it. And my sermons, the new sermon series we started a couple of weeks ago at our safe harbor is really deconstructing some of this and saying we don't worship the Bible. It, it is an incredibly human book complete with all the foibles Mm -hmm. and we can track it. We can see it. Uh, Don't, and I'm not going up to Northern Kentucky to see the Ark. I'm good. I, I, I understand the story of the Ark. And whenever you start trying to figure out how much square footage a cougar needs, you've missed the point. (laughs) Amen. Um, We, God was speaking to a pre-scientific people. Uh, Paul said the word of Christ had gone out and told the whole world. And I'm thinking, right, well, then that settled then. Stop the missionaries. But we we now understand hyperbole. We understand cultural phrasing. And I fear, you know, I, I see my old tribe disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 20% of its churches have closed in the last 10, 15 years. Um, I, I think God's doing an ecumenical movement of his own. He's moving us all into one, and I'm happy for the ride. I won't see the end of it. Um, I'm not interested in prophecies and debates. Uh, I just want to know how can I love you and serve you, and and that's enough. I agree 100%, and I think conversations like this one that we have had tonight have a role to play in that ecumenical direction because— we all have a love for God. We all have a love for one another. And even though Kevin and I tend to get snarky, and that's one of the things I love about you, Brother Patrick, is that you have no shortage of snark either. And I appreciate that tremendously. Yeah, my, my wife, um, she says that you are one of the her favorite guests. She said, I love the three of you guys. You just you you guys all are just great with each other. We can, well, we can just all make fun of each other, you know? Like when well, we make we a can. joke, we can be like, no, that was bad. That was really bad. <laughs> well, and, and that's one of the things, this demeanor and having conversations like this, it's, I, I think it's important for, for those that struggle with the same concepts that I struggle with, with the same concepts, Patrick, that you've struggled with. Same thing for you, Kevin, the concepts you've struggled with whenever we're able to talk about this in a vulnerable way, openly and honestly about where we've come from, about some of the issues that we still have with that old paradigm and that old framework that we can't quite shuck off. And 
some of the difficulties in moving through and understanding this this new paradigm that is more Christ centered, that is more attitudinally focused, like you said, Kevin, that that focuses more on knowing Jesus. It it helps us move into a better direction. It helps us move into a healthier place, not only as individuals, but as a collective whole. And Patrick, like you, it it really does make me sad. I mean, it's it's bittersweet in a way to see the decline of those churches affiliated with the restoration movement. And, you know, the church that my wife and I belong to now, we're we're fortunate to see some real growth happening there in in that church. It's it's really remarkable to see that, you know, what happens whenever a restoration movement group can move past those legalistic trappings and that focus on bibliolatry and worshiping the Bible itself or worshiping our interpretation of the Bible. What can happen when we move beyond that and we become not people of the book, but Jesus people? people that seek to emulate Christ, people that seek to follow Jesus, people that seek to love one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Yeah, We're seeing some amazing things happen. We're seeing growth, whereas in other churches, you see the decline. And a part of me longs to see that legalism die out and be replaced with something better. But a part of my heart also hurts to see that heritage and to see those people that are sincere and good-hearted people, these Christians that love God, though they may be a bit misguided in their hermeneutic and in their approach and how that manifests, it still hurts to see them hurt as they as they face the the waning of that movement, of that group, of that mentality. It's it's very difficult for me. It's it's hard to put into words, but I'm hoping that this conversation that we've had tonight is something that can help those who maybe are struggling with these questions or those people that struggle with a different perspective on baptism or who still hold on to some of those legalistic hallmarks of that perspective of baptism that I used to have, that Kevin used to have, Patrick that you used to have. Maybe maybe this is going to help somebody. So as as we start to wrap this up, what other closing remarks do we have? Lee, I was just going to say in going with what you're saying, one thing that understanding that God is a God of accommodation also has helped me to realize that we need to be willing to accommodate and allow others to be accommodated. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to necessarily give up my freedoms all the time for others. There may be times I have to do that. Paul talks about that. Love looks out not just for the interest of ourselves, but for the interest of others. Um, But that also doesn't mean that I have to give up all my freedoms. If there is a church that I can worship at, if there's a church that I can express myself in a way that aligns more with what I believe, then I believe that's accommodative and that God accommodates for that. But what about those churches who you point out who are still stuck in legalism? You know, I don't have any bitterness toward them. Uh, What I see is individuals who are living out their faith to the best of their ability in the system that more than likely they were conditioned to believe, that they were programmed to believe, and they're simply loving God just like the Jews loved God, the Israelites loved God through animal sacrifice, just like uh, many people have loved God throughout the years in different ways that that match their culture, that match their upbringing, that match what they know to be true or how they understand things. And God has always worked within that. Patrick, you brought up God working with the ancient assumptions of the biblical writers. 
you know, God didn't correct their ancient assumptions, right, on on the cosmos. He's, he wasn't sitting there going, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, that's not how things really work, because that wasn't the point. The point was to communicate the who of the universe, not not the what of the universe or the how, but the who is behind it. And we can get so caught up in all these little details. We can get so caught up in animal sacrifice. We get so caught up in circumcision, so caught up in baptism, and all these little things that we forget what is the point in all of this? What, why, is, why are we doing this? And for so many, including myself for many, many years, and probably still to an extent, it was about what I can do for God. And it was a, the pressure was on me. It was all about me, me, me doing what I'm supposed to do right and making sure I have that checklist. And it wasn't even necessarily about serving others. And if it was about serving others, it was still within a check list mentality. Like, okay, check. I went and fed the hungry. Check. I did this. Instead of developing that character, that attitude of who I actually am, of having God change my heart, it was still under the guise of, well, these are just the things I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian, not transforming me into a completely different person. And people ask, Lee, I know they ask you, they ask me, they've, they've asked us on podcast, well, why have we changed? And we, there's many reasons. But Lee, you and I have talked a lot about this, and Patrick, I'm sure the same is true for you too. When God changes you from the inside out, you cannot deny that. I cannot deny the fruit that is that that I'm seeing in my own life because God has made me a completely different person because I've made it no more about myself or about these random acts of just making sure I'm doing these things, but I want to love like Jesus loves. And I fail miserably, miserably at it every single day. But I now realize that it's about becoming more like Jesus, more of him and and less of me. It's having those attitudinal truths and applying those in every aspect of my life, bearing the fruit of the spirit. And it's not about the book. It's about Jesus. And in fact, the people who were about the book didn't know the book was about Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, you search the scriptures for you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's it's me that they these scriptures testify of. It's me. And you miss that. And yet the people who didn't know the book often knew how to imitate Jesus and emulate him and their examples more so than those who did know, quote unquote, the book. And so um, I hope this conversation has been beneficial I've had a fun time recording this. Patrick, you are fun just to have on our program. I hope that you're willing to come back and join us just to talk about some other topics. Lee and I joked and said we figured there would be some uh, people who probably disagree with us on this episode. So we're like, we'll bring on Patrick just so we can have a third person. And maybe that way they'll go after Patrick instead of us if they if they disagree. <laughs> we'll have a shield there. Of absorbing the hate of others is one of the services I provide. Um, I I changed from the outside in. Um, I I feel like I'm still the same judgmental, violent um, fellow I've always been, but I've been changed by the evidence. And the reason I changed my look at scripture, the way that I handle it, what I think it is and what I think it says is I made a deal with God saying, all right, Um, If we're going to do this, you have to let me look at the evidence and go where it points. And so I'm just following it. And I'm not there yet. And I want to say this, no matter what I've said tonight, um, agree or disagree, I love you. And anything that I've said, which is wrong, 
I'm not even worried about it because the Holy Spirit can take care of it. And Christ has already forgiven me. And he says he loves all of us. And God so loved the world. And I choose to take him at his word. We're okay. Just relax and walk with Jesus. Absolutely. Well, last thing I'll ask, Patrick, is there anything going on in the near future with our Safe Harbor Church that you would like to let our audience know about? Not really. Um, we, we just continue to grow. You can find us at OurSafeHarbor.com uh, and learn about us there. But this week, we picked up um, Kenya, uh, Pakistan, and Bahrain. Oh, wow. Which I think puts us at 24 nations a week uh, and 49 states a week. We still don't have wow. North Dakota, which... Um, still don't have. I'm going to go there and sign in one Sunday just so you can say you've got North Dakota. And and we are dishonest enough to count that, Kevin. So you go do that. <laughs> well, it's 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 if we've learned nothing in this episode, it's it's all about just making sure that we're checking that box, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but God is doing something remarkable with all of this, and I don't know what it is yet. But I don't need to know. Um, we're having a very good time, and we would welcome uh, Lee, you, and Kevin to come to the soundstage sometime and visit, get a tour, sit on the stage, and talk. Um, I think we'd enjoy that. Yeah, I think that'd be a blast. We'll have to make that happen. Yes. Well, Patrick, thank you once again so much for your time. We know Anytime. how busy you are, and we appreciate your input. We appreciate your candor. We appreciate your your wit and everything that you're doing with our safe harbor, and especially for being a guest on our program. So thank you again to our audience. We thank you as well, because without you, we would not have a program. We'd just be putting this out there into the ether for the three or four people that, that would listen. Plus my mom who would just listen out of obligation. Thankfully though, our audience continues to grow. Um, if you like what we're doing, even if you don't like what we're doing, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us that five-star review on iTunes we appreciate all of you. Share this podcast with your friends. Share it with your enemies, too, because they need Jesus as well. And hopefully, as Jesus keeps working on you, you won't have any enemies anymore. So thank you all so much. We appreciate you all, and we bid you all a good night.